Good evening. My name is Vivian Catfield, and this is Haunted News, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. This week, for our 132nd episode, the 22nd of Season 2, A Season of Short Works, I've written a longer story inspired by two things, America's current obsession with true crime narratives and a little exploration of my own into a true crime that happened over a hundred years ago, right here in Cincinnati. Those of you who've listened to this podcast for a while might recall that in one of the early episodes, I spoke about an unusual gravestone that I found while ghost hunting in Spring Grove Cemetery, and then decided to research further because of the unusually tragic circumstances in which the family died. The stone was a remembrance of the Cole family, who perished as a result of not just one, but two mysterious tragedies. The youngest daughter, Emma, died of an unnamed accident while the family was living at one of their residences in New York. Her body was eventually brought back to Cincinnati for burial. Then, a few years later, in 1882, her father, Henry Cole, shot and killed his wife, Sarah, and their older daughter, Henrietta, before turning the gun on himself. Police believe that the cause of Henry Cole's murderous rage was the fact that his wife had discovered an affair between him and a woman named Florence, who lived nearby on Milton Street and may have been one of their tenants. She decided to divorce him, taking their surviving daughter Henrietta back with her to New York. Apparently, Henry provided amply for his mistress Florence because the affair had drained his finances to the point that the once well-to-do lawyer had argued with his daughter, Henrietta, in the days before the murders over a fan that she bought for $5 to take to her graduation exercises at Woodward High School. Henry demanded that the girl return the fan to Weathersby's store where she'd bought it, an event that's given an unusual amount of detail in the Cincinnati Inquirer's write-up of the tragedy. I've included a link to the article in the show notes. There are so many things that continue to haunt me about the Cole family's story, even two years after I initially discovered it. Perhaps it's partly because I continue to be puzzled as to why the surviving accounts spend so much time on insignificant details, including the price of Henrietta's incendiary graduation fan, but neglect the glaringly significant ones such as the fact that Emma died from an unspecified accident a few years before. Was there some sort of cover-up in the legal community regarding Emma's death? Could Henry have killed Emma, too, in a violent outburst and then set it up to look like an accident? Possibly. If Henry Cole was a well-known attorney in the area from a respected and wealthy family, as the newspaper claimed he was, it wouldn't have been difficult for them to sweep it under the rug, even after he murdered the rest of the family years later. The world may never know. And that's what keeps people interested in true crime, I think. This need to find an explanation, even for tragedies that happened long ago, to seek justice for the victims and to thereby find catharsis. Although some find society's current fascination with murders morbid, I tend to disagree. Instead, I find a lot of truth in the opinion offered by psychotherapist F. Diane Barth in her piece for NBC News, which I have included, included a link to in the show notes. There, 
Barth writes that interest in true crime stories intensified during the recent COVID pandemic due to the fact that, quote, a pervasive sense of helplessness, which many people have felt some for years, some only for the past few months, can be modified or even lifted by seeing someone else speak about their pain and have it recognized, end quote. Going on to, quote, licensed social worker Rick Nizzardini, Barth writes that, quote, These shows touch on the hallmark elements of trauma, a sense of powerlessness, a shattering of our sense of safety in the world, and the violation of attachments to family, friends, and community. This can raise emotions to the surface that often feel dissociated or cut off from processing, but can be helpful for recovery in the right context, end quote. In other words, by hearing about and discussing the pain of others, we, as a community, learn to better understand and heal ourselves. However, the caveat to all of this is that watching true crime can lull us into a false sense of security. As Chicago psychotherapist Kathleen Check said in the same article, quote, Tuning in and following the specifics of a crime also creates a false sense of being able to see inside the mind of a criminal thus creating a psychological protective barrier that if I know how criminals operate, I can protect myself, end quote. Thus, even though accounts of true crime can offer catharsis, they also should serve as a reminder that no matter how secure we feel, unpredictable dangers remain out there, lurking in the shadows that we are often too arrogant to regard. So, that's the spirit in which I wrote this week's story, which is about how the Cole family tragedy, although it seems so long ago, eerily parallels many current social problems that still happen today, if we only took the time to pay proper attention to them. I call this week's tale The Ivory Fan, a short story by Vivian Catfield. O-M-G, Emma breathed out slowly, exaggerating each letter as she pulled her hand from the box of clothing and props that had been donated to the theater program. They'd been digging through boxes for hours, looking at costume pieces for the school's production of Pride and Prejudice, in which Emma was cast as Jane Bennett. Florence, would you look at this? Emma's bright blue eyes sparkled as she opened the fan in front of her face and fluttered it. Don't you think this would be perfect for the Pemberley ball scene? Florence leaned forward over the box so that she could examine the fan more closely. Mm, the lace on it is a bit yellowed, but we could probably use a bleach pin on that. She squinted at the chinoiserie-style scrolling on the fan's handle, taking in the intricate work of elephants dancing along it. Most of the blacking in the background that cast them into relief had worn away, but the level of craftsmanship was still amazing. Do you think it's real ivory? Emma snapped the fan shut and ran her fingers along the length of it, clearly in awe of her find. I bet it is, totally. I mean, all the rest of this stuff is super flashy-flashy, she gestured at the box. Who knows where it came from or who it could have belonged to? Some famous old-school opera singer, I bet. Emma flicked the fan open again. I would be careful with it regardless, Florence cautioned, 
pointing at one of the blades. There's a crack in that handle. Looks like it's been glued back together. Probably fragile. She hoped this comment would persuade Emma to discard it. Emma lost interest in most things quickly, and Florence wanted the fan. It didn't work. I don't care, Emma said, peering over the lacy top at Florence. I'm going to take it into rehearsal tomorrow and tell the prop director this is what I'm using in the ball scene. Final answer. It's perfect. Florence sighed. She knew that once Emma's mind was made up, little could change it. Emma had the confidence of a girl who'd been told no on very few occasions and by very few people. Someone who never had to learn to settle for anything less than perfect. Florence found having to deal with Emma's constant, random excitement over the most minute aspects of life, as well as her overly optimistic aspirations for her future acting career, exhausting. But that's why I have a job, right? Florence thought to herself. To encourage her. We really should put these away and get started on your vocal workout for today, Florence said. You know that you've got that final round of auditions coming up for scholarships in just three more weeks. Have you been doing the range extension exercises we started? Emma frowned, settling down behind the box with her legs folded beneath her. She peered over the top. I've been meaning to. It's just that with prom coming up and being on the decoration committee and how calculus keeps kicking my butt and... Florence stood up, crossing her arms. No need for excuses. If you haven't practiced, then you haven't practiced. Just don't blame me when you blow your follow-up auditions and end up at a state school. I'll be too busy filling out my unemployment forms to hear about it anyway. It was the old guilt trip that Florence used all the time to shame Emma into practicing. She justified it to herself by remembering how true it was. If the parents of girls like Emma stopped hiring her for private lessons then Florence couldn't pay her bills. But that's why girls like Emma Schwartz had time to fret over calculus, Florence reasoned silently, as she waited for the weight of guilt at being responsible for her livelihood to settle on the girl. They've never had to struggle through the simple math of making ends meet or paying for school. Florence smiled, a mournful, practiced smile. As Emma's bright eyes darkened, she stood up, but Emma's gaze remained fixed on the box so that she didn't have to look at her. I'm sorry, Florence. I just forgot. We can do it now if you like. That's why I'm here, isn't it? Florence replied as Emma shuffled behind her towards the practice rooms. Florence knew that Emma looked up to her more like a cool big sister than an authority figure. It was a situation that she was a little uncomfortable with, given the rest of her life circumstances, but not enough for Florence to discourage Emma from thinking that she was her friend. If anything, Emma's attachment to her was a little extra insurance for Florence's precarious situation. Ever since the Schwartz family had moved from their big house in Mason to the townhouse on Milton Street in the summer before her senior year, Emma had struggled to find friends at her new high school. Although the girl loved the theater program there at the School for Creative and Performing Arts, 
She'd arrived far too late in her high school career to be invited into its elaborate network of social cliques. Thus, even though Emma was a joiner by nature and had thrown herself at every possible thing that she could sign up for, she still found herself alone most weekends, once official school activities ended. The transition into a smaller space had troubled Emma, too. Florence knew, from the endless times she'd heard the girl complain about having to give up her horse and her big bay window with a reading nook when the family moved to town. I mean, if the whole purpose was to downsize after I went away to college, then why couldn't they have waited just one more year? Until I was actually, like, gone, Emma moaned. If they're so worried about being empty nesters, then why are they in such a hurry to push me out of the nest? Although she told the girl platitudes that she knew Emma needed to hear, offering comfort that would keep her in good graces, Florence knew that she could never reveal the truth behind why her parents chose to move. It wasn't because of what Henry had told Emma's mother, Sarah, that he'd finally seen the light of her argument about the wasted space of their McMansion and agreed to her haranguings about reducing their carbon footprint. No, Florence could never tell Emma or Sarah the truth, that the move was partly because of her. It had begun innocuously enough. Business was down, and so Henry's law firm had hired a consulting company to devise a new advertising campaign in hopes of attracting new clients. Florence auditioned and was chosen to play a concerned wife who came in for a free initial consultation. She laughed bitterly at the irony of it now, how she'd flirted with Henry over the ridiculously corny lines of dialogue. Then how Henry had invited her to their house the big one in Mason when they still had it, for drinks and to allegedly discuss how the script could be rewritten to sound more natural. Their relationship quickly evolved, and before she knew it, Florence was living in a stylish, newly renovated apartment, driving a Mercedes convertible fresh off the lot, and accompanying Henry every time he went out of town on business. Although Sarah had been the one who actually hired her to be Emma's voice and acting coach, Florence's employment had come at Henry's suggestion. Since then, she'd seen Sarah only rarely, and usually in the company of a mob of other wealthy women whom she invited over once a month for book club, or rather, wine club, as it seemed to Florence that they never actually got around to discussing any books, but instead sat around slugging wine, giggling and bad-mouthing their husbands. It was primarily because of this wine club that Florence didn't feel so bad about the whole situation. If Sarah didn't spend so much time at the homes of her wine friends or in the yoga studio, her other favorite haunt, then perhaps she'd have noticed that her daughter was struggling to fit in at her new school, or that her husband was also never home. It wasn't like she was just using the Schwartz family to support herself, Florence rationalized. She was merely an understudy, filling in the parts of their life that were missing. At least, that was the way it had started. Things changed after the expensive advertising campaign failed to generate any new clients. Henry, who'd always liked to knock a few back after work, started day drinking heavily as well 
He would show up at the apartment he rented for Florence at random hours, day and night, demanding to be let in because he paid for the place, goddammit. Lately, Florence had started to think that when Emma left for college, it would be best if she went too. Back to New York, where she hadn't been able to afford both rent and her student loans on server's pay as she tried to go on auditions. However, since Henry's support of her for the last couple of years had allowed Florence not only to pay off most of her loans, but also start saving up for a life after them, she'd worked out a new plan. Florence had even been scoping out potential apartments during the days in the city while she'd waited for Emma to complete her first round of auditions. None of them were as nice as the one she had in Cincinnati, which was a hip loft in the OTR district, one that had been converted from the old Woodward High School building into an urban oasis of vintage cool, but smaller places that would get her back to New York and away from Henry. That was what mattered. Florence pondered all of this, as she had dozens of times before, as she half listened to Emma wavering through her vocal exercises. It was clear that the girl hadn't practiced. Glad that it was over, so that they could talk about something else, Florence asked what plans Emma had for the weekend. I've got this creative writing assignment thing, Emma replied, flipping through the calendar app on her phone where I've got to go down to Spring Grove Cemetery, find a headstone on which the name speaks to me in some way, and then write a story about what I think that person's life might have been like. That sounds kind of depressing, Florence replied. Want someone to go with you? She'd been hoping for a good excuse to arise so that she could avoid Henry for at least part of the weekend. Florence had found out that he rarely argued when that excuse involved Emma needing her for something. Yeah, that would be great, Emma brightened again, if you have time. For you, Florence answered, all the time in the world. The next day, Florence met Emma at Spring Grove Cemetery. She'd arrived early, but knew she'd have to wait. Emma was rarely on time for anything. Another luxury rich kids could afford, Florence thought. The ability to arrive whenever they were ready. Florence sat sipping coffee from her insulated mug and trying not to stare at the messages that kept popping up on her phone from Henry. He wanted to see her that evening. Florence turned off the notification signal and closed her eyes. When Emma finally showed up with an enormous power green smoothie in hand and a mouthful of apologies, they strolled together among the trees. It was the first week of April, that uncertain time of year when old half-rotten leaves still clustered in the corners of curbs, even though the new spring foliage had already formed a canopy overhead. Where do you want to start? Florence asked, scanning the rolling hills covered in gravestones as far as the eye could see. I thought we'd try this, Emma replied, pulling a phone out of her pocket. I downloaded a ghost hunting app last night. Thought it might be fun to see if it could lead us to something that would make a good ghost story. Florence rolled her eyes, but agreed. Emma was always talking about something spooky. She prepared for months before every Halloween, often buying three or four costumes for different parties. 
Florence chalked it up to the whole Gen Z obsession with resurrecting 90s goth style from its flannel-shrouded tomb. Still, she was in a mood to play along. Florence dutifully followed Emma around the graveyard as the app crackled and spat, every now and then growling out something that sounded vaguely like a word. As the word displayed on screen, Emma would flash it at Florence, and the pair would look carefully around for any connection to nearby headstones. After about an hour, Emma stopped and pointed at a stone obelisk across the street from where they stood, next to one of the cemetery's many landmarks, an equilateral granite pyramid. Bounding over to it like a rabbit on the springy turf, Emma crouched down to stare at the weathered inscription on the base. This one, she exclaimed excitedly. Florence followed and squatted down beside Emma, careful not to get the knees of her jeans wet in the damp grass. Wouldn't it have been easier just to put your first name in the grave finder on the cemetery website if that's what you were looking for? But that's just it, Emma exclaimed. I wasn't looking for someone with my first name. They just found me, spontaneously, like it was meant to be. Emma switched off the ghost hunting app and pulled up a search app. Entering one of the names from the headstone, Emma Cole, and the death date, Emma shook her head. Nothing. What's up with the rest of the family? Florence asked, her brows knitting together as she recognized the uncanniness of the two other names on the monument, but said nothing, waiting for Emma to notice it too. They all died on the same day. Must have been some kind of accident. I know, Emma said, gesturing at the inscription with one hand as she entered text with the other. Don't you think that their names are super weird too? Henry and Sarah? I mean, those are pretty common first names and our last names are different, but those are my parents. I'm Googling it all now. Stand by. As Emma continued to search, Florence's own phone began to vibrate in her pocket. She pulled it out. Henry again. This time, his tone was slightly more threatening. Where the hell are you? I'm at your apartment. I have a key, too, you know. Florence felt her heart begin to beat louder as she downed the last of her coffee and slipped her cell back into her pocket. From the locator app, she could see that Henry was, in fact, at her apartment which meant that he could see where she was, too, and could show up there at any time. The cemetery wasn't far away. Emma, I'm sorry, but I've got to take this. It's a private matter. Urgent, Florence said, backing away toward the Mercedes to leave. Wait, I've, I've got it. Don't you want to see what I found? It's super creepy, Emma asked, shivering with excitement. Tell me later. Florence called back over her shoulder as she shut the car door and started the engine, leaving the girl standing alone in the cemetery. I'll call you. Emma looked back at her phone screen as Florence pulled away. On it was a digital reprint of a Cincinnati Inquirer newspaper article from 1882. The headline screamed, The Cole Family Tragedy. Disappointed, Emma settled down on a gravestone and began to read. Six hours later, Emma sat down to dinner with her parents, still eager to share her strange findings with anyone who would listen. 
Both Henry and Sarah had tried to change the subject more than once, but Emma wasn't deterred. Seriously, though, Emma said through a mouthful of salad, holding her phone up for her mother to see. I promise I'll be quiet about it in a minute, but just look at this article. They all lived on Milton Street, too. The dad was a lawyer and the other daughter, Henrietta, had just graduated from high school. It's just so crazy that the whole thing could have been triggered by an argument over the price of a fan. I think that there was more to it, though. With that part about the other woman, what was her name? That would have made more sense. Emma scrolled feverishly through her phone, trying to find the reference in the article. Henry slammed his fist down onto the table, hard, causing Emma to jump and drop her phone to the floor. Have some respect for when people aren't interested in what you have to say, Henry hissed through clenched teeth, and put down that goddamn phone at the dining table. Henry stared at his daughter, who looked away sheepishly, then at Sarah. I forgot to put the strawberries on top of the salad. Why don't I go into the kitchen and bring them out? Sarah asked. Emma nodded weakly and bent to pick up her phone. Henry kicked it across the floor out of her grasp. Although she watched her husband's actions closely, Sarah said nothing. She glided into the kitchen without a backward glance. On a different topic, Henry continued, pulling a crinkled envelope out of his pocket. What's this bill I got today for $2,600? Emma didn't need to look at the envelope. She sank back into her wooden chair with her hands folded in her lap. It's from Appearances, the formal boutique for my prom dress. Emma could feel the heat of her father's intensely scrutinizing gaze as she added hastily. That's for shoes and everything else included. The gown's Stella McCartney. It's black so I can wear it again and... Henry cut her off, pointing across the table at Emma. I told you when you asked if you could borrow my credit card that the limit was $500. He swabbed his mouth with a napkin and slid back in his chair. Picking up his empty salad plate, Henry's voice was deadly calm. You'll just have to take it back. But, Dad, Emma exclaimed, I can't. I've already shown it to my friends at school and they thought it was amazing. If I take it back now, then they'll think... Emma didn't finish because at that moment, her father hurled his salad plate across the room. It missed Emma's left ear by inches and shattered against the gray-painted shiplap wall. Do you think I'm made of money? Henry roared. Emma scrunched her eyes shut, willing herself not to hear. In a rage, Henry stomped across the room and snatched Emma's leather slouch tote from where it sat by the door. Then he flipped it over, dumping its contents onto the floor. It's always something with you and your mother both. Henry shook the bag at Emma. Just last month, another couple grand for this, this sack, Henry sputtered, trying but failing to name the designer in his frustration. Louis Vuitton, Emma whispered, barely opening her eyes but still not looking at her father. Woohoo! Henry jeered sarcastically, slinging the bag across the room where it hit the same wall as the salad plate and landed in a heap on top of its remains. Louie, hooey, 
fucking buoy. You're still in high school. Who are you trying to impress? He began picking up the contents of the bag from the pile on the floor and pelting them at Emma one by one. $30 lip gloss, I bet. Prescription sunglasses, another 500 I remember that bill well. Gone now. The glasses hit the wall with a smack that caused one of the lenses to pop out. Now, what's this? Henry picked up the ivory fan. This one I haven't seen, but I'm sure that bill will show up soon. Emma stared at the floor and seethed. That didn't cost you anything. Florence and I found it in a box of donations for the theater program. Oh, my apologies, Henry mocked with a simpering grin. He stepped across the room to stand beside his daughter, deliberately smashing the tube of lip gloss. A burst of glimmering pink spewed out onto the polished wooden floor. I might have known that the only inexpensive thing in that sack came from the theater, Henry said in a badly exaggerated accent, rolling the R at the end with extra relish, because everything there is worthless. Henry punctuated each word by smacking his daughter on the top of the head with a fan, a little harder each time, until with the last blow, it cracked. Emma cried out. Henry laughed and dropped the fan onto the table, just as Sarah re-entered the dining room with a bowl full of strawberries. Seeing the anguished look on her daughter's face and the floor full of broken things, Sarah sighed and sat down the bowl. Honestly, Henry, was that really necessary? Henry crossed his arms. Yes, Sarah dear, I believe it was. Our daughter needs to learn that money doesn't grow on trees. And how better to do that than to see what it has been wasted on, scattered like so many leaves. Sarah glowered at him, but Henry pretended not to see her. I'm going back to the office. I don't have time for this. I have to get ready for that seminar I'm giving at the lawyer's convention in Chicago this weekend, he announced. Turning on his heel without another word, Henry left the dining room. Emma and Sarah heard him pick up his keys and briefcase from the entry table on the way out the door. Neither of them spoke until they heard his car pull out of the driveway. Here, Sarah handed Emma a dishcloth and gestured at the puddle of pink gloss, which spread slowly like slime over the boards. Is that lip gloss? Wipe it up, please. We'll get you another tube this weekend when we go back to the mall to return that dress. He's just angry because you overspent. You know how he gets, throwing his little tantrums. Sarah began picking up the pieces of broken salad plate from the floor. How can you defend him? Emma asked, kneeling down to wipe up the pink stain. I mean, if the dress was too much, he could have just said so and explained why I had to return it like a normal person. He doesn't have to scream and throw things like a child. Emma paused as Sarah jerked her hand back, dropping the sharp shard of broken salad plate that she'd tried to pick up. A small dot of blood raised on her fingertip, and Sarah blotted it with another dish rag as she continued to clean. Emma pressed on. And I'm not a child anymore, either. I'm not stupid. I think I know why we moved to this place. It wasn't because you wanted to go green or because you're afraid of living in a big house without me. It's because Dad's out of money, 
isn't it? Sarah wound the rag tightly around her finger to cover where the blood was seeping through the cloth. No, I know you're not either of those things, but I don't want to talk about any of that right now. Just go on up to your room and start your homework. But, Mom, why can't you just admit that... Sarah's voice was firm as she pointed a bloody finger at her daughter. Go. Emma dropped the rag that she'd been using to wipe up the crushed tube of gloss onto her plate, picked up the ivory fan and the other contents of her tote bag, and shuffled upstairs. Sitting in front of her laptop for an hour... Emma tried to turn off her racing thoughts so that she could work on the story for creative writing class. Yet, no words would come. She reread the story about the Cole family that she'd found that afternoon. Searching the internet again for any pictures of the Coles, Emma found nothing. It was as if they'd been completely erased by history. Eventually, she shut off the laptop. Lying in bed, Emma thought about the story that she wanted to write, but couldn't. About the oldest daughter, Henrietta, who'd gone to Woodward High School. How she wondered if Florence's current apartment had once been a classroom where Henrietta studied. Also, she thought about the youngest Cole sister, Emma, the one with her name. Emma Cole had died when the family was still in New York. Some kind of accident although the old newspaper accounts that she'd read online were vague about it. Almost too vague, like they were hiding something. Had Henry been involved there, too? Emma considered. Last, there were the murders themselves. Henry, who had lost his mind, possibly because his family found out about his mistress and his attempts to conceal his financial ruin. It was all so uncannily similar in some ways, and yet so long ago. Emma flicked the ivory fan open and shut, holding her thumb over the crack so that it wouldn't pull apart, and counting the elephants carved along the handle, over and over, pondering it all, until she fell asleep. The next morning, Emma insisted on taking her mother's Prius alone back to the boutique to return the dress. Wearing an oversized gray hoodie and her glued-together sunglasses, Emma hoped that she wouldn't run into anyone she knew from school. Most of the popular girls bought their prom dresses from appearances, and she couldn't stand even thinking about what kind of gossip might start if they knew what she was there to do. Slinking in quietly with the offending dress shrouded in a store-branded garment bag, Emma closed the door silently behind her. However, once inside, Emma forgot all about what her classmates might think. Spying Florence at the counter with an identical garment bag in hand, Emma ducked behind an enormous rack of dresses to listen. Yeah, we decided not to go to the convention in Chicago this weekend after all, Florence said, trying to sound nonchalant. I bought this specifically for the trip, but now I don't need it. I see replied the sales clerk, unzipping the bag to examine the dress. Her voice was indifferently cool. Do you still have the tags and the original receipt? We can't accept a return without them. As Florence handed them over, the clerk continued to drone on about the rules in a dour voice. 
or if the dress has been worn, or if there have been too many returns on one person's account. Do you remember how many returns you've had this calendar year? Florence shook her head. No. The clerk looked at her suspiciously. Well, I'm sure we have a record of it in the back. Give me just a moment to pull it up on the computer and I'll check. I'll be back in a minute. Rolling her eyes as the woman disappeared behind the curtain, separating the showroom from the stock, Florence pulled her cell out of her pocket. Seeing the name on a call she'd missed, Florence pressed send to return it. As she began to speak, without any introduction, Emma realized that Florence must be talking to a friend. Yeah, yeah, don't you start too with the I told you so's, Florence began. I decided not to go with Henry to Chicago, that's all. I'm just tired of having to say how high every time he tells me to jump. Florence paused, waiting for the voice on the other end to reply. No, the girl still doesn't know anything. Hopefully she never will. She's not a bad kid, which is exceedingly weird, considering what a prick her pop can be and how checked out her mom is. But I guess all that dysfunction is good for an actress, right? I mean, look at us. What theatrical sensations we turned out to be. They laughed together so loudly that Emma could hear the other woman cackling on the other end of the line from across the room. Once their giggling fit subsided, Florence continued. Yeah, I'm still planning on moving back to the city by September, barring, of course, some other kind of disaster. I've been checking out apartments on the old man's dime for months, ever since Emma made it to the second round of auditions for her top schools. Another pause as Florence nodded, listening to her friend's comment. No, I don't think she'll get into all of them. Maybe one or two of her safety schools, if she's lucky. She's a good kid and a decent actor, like I said, but she never practices her musical numbers. On the high notes, she sounds as if Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy had a love child. Florence then proceeded to imitate Emma's wavering voice from their lesson the day before. Horrified, Emma realized that Florence's version was spot on. The sales clerk frowned as she returned from the back room to see Florence once more giggling at her own jokes. She cleared her throat, and Florence ended the call. I'm sorry, Miss Rivers, but the manager says you've exceeded the number of returns you're allowed this calendar year. I won't be able to process this return after all. Perhaps you'll find another occasion to wear the dress, if your husband travels frequently. He's not my husband, Florence snapped and I don't think that we'll be going anywhere together that would require formal attire any time in the foreseeable future. Florence drummed her fingers impatiently on the counter as she tried to come up with any possible angle to salvage her mission. Look, if the manager is still old Mr. Weatherby, could you tell him it's me, Florence Rivers, that I've been shopping here for years and maybe he might be willing to make an exception? Old Mr. Weatherby no longer works here, the clerk replied smugly. He retired two years ago. We had farewell signs up for months so that our regular customers would know. The clerk leaned on the word regular to make sure that Florence understood she didn't consider her sparse patronage to make her one of those. Rolling her eyes once more, Florence zipped up her garment bag and stalked out of the store 
with the unwanted dress still in hand. Crouching behind the rack, Emma began to sob. Hearing her, the sales clerk guided Emma up to the counter, where she tearfully explained why she needed to return the prom dress. Surprisingly, the clerk processed Emma's return without a whiff of resistance. Afterward, Emma drove the Prius to her mother's yoga studio to wait for Sarah's class to finish up. As she sat staring at the studio's name, Plank Me Later, in whimsical curly cues of script, Emma replayed the conversation that she just overheard in her mind. And still, she couldn't believe it. Her father? Grouchy old Henry with Florence? Her tutor? They belonged together about as much as sardines and peanut butter. It just didn't make sense. However, for Sarah, all of the pieces fit together perfectly. I would have expected no less from Henry. A younger woman is easier for a weak man to control. But why didn't you do something about it? Emma asked. Strategy, Sarah replied, walking Emma back to the Prius. I've suspected that Henry had a separate life going on for quite some time now, and that was where a lot of the money was going. I just never thought it would be her. She's not even pretty. With that obviously self-colored hair and those roots showing, it's ugh, so cheap. Sarah shrugged. I'm sorry that the woman turned out to be your tutor. That's rough. Regardless, though, Infidelity is a huge incentive to settling out of court, so perhaps that is a possibility now. It would certainly help expedite the divorce. Wait, what? Emma asked. Are you and Dad getting a divorce? Not right away, Sarah replied. I've been saving up for years in a secondary account at a separate bank, enough to pay for a new place to live, just waiting until the time is right. Maybe we'll go back east to New York for a few years so that you can study and then go who knows where. What matters is that we make it safely there together. But why haven't you told me all of this before? Emma asked. Because you're too honest, Sarah replied. I was afraid you'd let it slip to Florence or your father about what was about to happen. That we were going to leave. I had to play the perfect fawning wife and mother so that no one would suspect it when the time came. Here, Sarah paused. I hate to say it because I'd love to believe otherwise, but it's true. Women have fewer options than men, and that leads us into some pretty precarious situations. Regardless, I'm sick of keeping up appearances now that I can see how it's finally affected you. I'm going to confront Henry tonight and tell him that we're leaving. But wait, Emma pleaded. Aren't you worried about how he'll react? The slightest thing makes him fly off the handle these days. I, I wouldn't want him to hurt you. Henry? Sarah scoffed. I'm not worried about him. He's just a bully. Too weak to hurt a fly. He'd probably just run back to his girlfriend and cry. But what about the coals? Emma insisted. Sometimes men like Dad just snap. You're too superstitious, Sarah dismissed her daughter with a wave of her hand as they got into the Prius to drive home. 
Nothing like that happens nowadays. That night at dinner, Sarah confronted Henry about the affair. When he countered with a jab about how she'd just have to tolerate it, Sarah informed him about her secret bank account and how she planned to move to New York with Emma when she left for college. She finished with how she would arrange to have the money from the divorce settlement sent there so that she never had to return to Cincinnati again. Listening to all of it carefully, Emma watched as her father turned pale as a ghost. However, when it was all over, she was surprised that he didn't lose his temper. Instead, Henry simply stated, Over my dead body will a woman run off with my money again. Then, he picked up his keys and briefcase and left without saying another word. Sarah winked at Emma, satisfied that she'd put Henry in his place. Emma wasn't so sure. Her father was never so compliant. Still, she helped her mother clear the table. Sarah took one of her sleeping pills afterwards and told Emma that she was turning in early. Emma went upstairs to her own bedroom and put in her earbuds. Lying down to listen to music usually lulled her, but that night it didn't work. For some reason, she didn't know why, Emma had the urge to pray. She hadn't prayed since she was a little girl and her parents still went to church. Crawling out of bed with her earbuds still in her ears, Emma knelt down and clasped her hands. If she hadn't turned her back to the window at that moment, Emma would have seen the lights of her father's car as he turned in the driveway. If she hadn't still had her earbuds in with the music turned up, even as she prayed, Emma would have heard Henry struggling up the stairs, stumbling drunk against the railing. But because of these things, Emma heard nothing, felt nothing, until the very last moment as her father put his pistol to the back of her head and pulled the trigger. Sleeping heavily under sedation in the master bedroom, Sarah didn't hear her husband either. Sarah never awakened from her sleep as Henry walked up beside her, placed the tip of the pistol to her temple, and fired again. After that, Henry lay down next to her and shot himself. Then the house was silent. The next morning, when Florence arrived to pick up Emma for her voice lesson, she found the bodies. After she recovered from the initial shock, Florence glanced around for any sign of what might have happened. She didn't have to look long. Henry's suicide note lay on the table. Scanning it quickly and seeing her name, Florence stuffed it into her pocket. Then she went into Henry's study and opened his briefcase. She knew that he kept a notebook there with all of his cryptocurrency passwords to the accounts where he stashed money away from his regular account with Sarah. He'd told her as much once when he had been drunk, right before he'd laughed and remarked that it didn't matter if she knew, because women were too stupid to understand the intricacies of crypto. Florence wasn't surprised that the little black notebook was right there, in his briefcase. Putting the notebook in her pocket, Florence closed the briefcase and used the end of her sleeve to wipe her prints off the brass latches. On the way back upstairs, Florence paused again by the doorway to Emma's room. Lying there on the floor, in a pool of the girl's congealed blood, was the ivory fan. Carefully, so as not to leave a trace, Florence picked up the fan, 
Emma's blood had dried into the grooves of its handle, settling in around the elephants to replace where the blacking had worn away. The lace was ruined, stained red, that was now turning to rust brown. But it had been yellow anyway, Florence reasoned. It was the ivory that mattered. Ivory was valuable. That was why Florence had wanted the fan in the first place, not for its beauty, which she couldn't afford to appreciate alone before, but its resale value. That was what had mattered then. Seeing Emma's tote bag propped by the side of her nightstand, Florence slipped the blood-crusted fan inside. I'll be... Although she would have hated to ruin such an expensive bag before, now it didn't matter so much. Now, Florence could afford to buy as many bags as she wanted. As she let herself out, relocking the door behind her, Florence changed her mind. Even if she had to repair it with glue and new lace, even if she could never wash Emma's dried blood out of the grooves of its intricate scroll work, Florence decided to keep the ivory fan. This is the end of The Ivory Fan, a short story by Vivian Catfield. Tune in next week for another new story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield, reminding you to remain ever watchful, because you never can tell someone or Something somewhere out there just might be watching you. <laughs>